You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to Episode 70 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And today we're coming to you from the Long Island Library Resources Council 28th Annual Conference on Libraries in the Future, held at the Heritage Club at Beth Page. The Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter, at The Library Pros, and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Library Pros. Consider leaving a review or tell a friend or colleague about us because word of mouth is the best way to help our podcast listenership grow. So today we are at the Long Island Library Resources Council Conference on Libraries in the Future. And we are going to have a, uh, some interesting people f- to speak to today. Uh, we have a showrunner, Sally Stiglitz, who, if you remember from the Adelphi episode, she was one of our guests. She now works at, at Lil Rick. So we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to come in with our first guest. So we'll be right back. Hi, and we're back here at the Lil Rick Conference about libraries in the future. And we have a guest with us today, so go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, my name is uh, Jim Vorbach. I'm the director of the Library and Information Science Program at St. John's University. Okay, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the program at St. John's, how long it's been around, and and, uh, we were just talking before about it now being an online program as well, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, the program has been around 81, 82, something like that, years. We've been fully online for the past five years. That The program has core component, a, uh, a management requirement, and then electives, which students may uh, specialize into a number of areas, uh, such as public, academic, special librarianship, archival studies, youth services, and management, and of those, our most recent addition, uh, roughly uh, two years ago, is a certificate in management, which the students in the master's program may participate in as well. And that there, the focus uh, is on project management, leadership, and advocacy. Tell, tell us a little bit more about that management component. So is that something that would be, I don't know if I'm going to be speaking out of turn here, something that would be a little bit in competition with what LIU Post has? No, because actually that was within the design of it. We certainly recognized the uh, excellent program that LIU has in uh, in management, and their focus uh, was more on the public librarianship side, mm-hmm. and and again, move and the kind of like steps to uh, move up in terms of administration or being a director in that area. Ours is more focused on uh, project management, knowledge management, and actually grew out of the special librarianship area, but we broadened it to, you know, not be as specific to, let's say, law librarianship or uh, government uh, research centers. So it is not it is not focused on a particular specialization. It is more broadly based, the coursework, um, like I said, project management, knowledge management, leadership and advocacy, we felt are these necessary skills for librarians to in sense to to grow as uh, leaders within their respective information fields. Is that new to this year? Is that certificate program new? This two year? years. Uh, two it's years been ago. Two, okay. Yeah, two years ago. So tell us about how St. John does now transition to being an online learning experience to get the master's degree as well. We felt it was vital 
as a relatively small program, and what I mean by small is small relative to the LAS schools in the country, which range from 30 to, let's say, 2,000 students. Uh, we were in about, about 100, around 100 or high 90s, that, that area. And so we felt it was important to broaden our audience. And so the decision, decision was made in 2015 to go fully online and only online. Because again, given our small size, we could not do, we felt, both equally well to do like a blended and do a fully online, which many of the larger schools do. So we decided to focus. Our faculty have been doing online courses for 10, 15 years, but now all the coursework is fully online. It allows us to focus. It allows us to, uh, to really engage even amongst ourselves with techniques that really help us in terms of de developing an excellent online program. Bob, isn't it interesting how, how things have transitioned to a point now where it's online learning? <coughs> uh, one of my um, library trainees at Sachem, he's, he's on an online program. And I'm fascinated with how different an experience it is versus being in, an, in a classroom listening to a lecture where it's more of assignment-based, isn't that right? It's more of an assignment-based curriculum as opposed to being more of a lecture. Exactly. The online courses in general would be more driven by uh, weekly, bi-weekly, or uh, and in addition to that, assignments, and in addition to that, uh, multi-week projects. Typically, the project would be like in the latter part of the course, so the weekly assignments, weekly discussions. Uh, build to that. Almost all the courses would have rely on a collaborative discussion. There would be a lot of group work involved. Sometimes the projects will be group work as well. That really varies from course to course. Do you remember back in the day, Chris, when online learning and online classes were like less than? Oh yeah. Being physically in the classroom, uh, they were you know they were regarded as uh, oh you went oh you got that online oh I'm sorry you know yeah uh, yeah. So, but nowadays, it actually allows you to focus more individually on the, on the student. This, there's a lot more interaction going on. Right. I mean, that just comes with it. I mean, either, either, either in the sense of the, the discussions, interacting that way, or in the sense of the kind of feedback you get in terms of assignment feedback going on, or in the sense of ad hoc emails, because right. students need to feel engaged in the program. Right. And, and that's, in, that's important for the online experience, that they feel that they are part of the virtual classroom. That is really key. I think that's what they missed. You know, many students get kind of lost in a physical classroom, and this allows them to be focused on individually, right, and have that individual engagement that they so need to succeed. So I'm not going to hold you to, to numbers or anything, but just off the top of your head, what is the more popular track? Is it public librarianship? Is it academic? Is it archival? Do you know just? Yeah, we're seeing basically three. And of the three, okay, what, what are they? We're seeing archival studies. We're seeing youth services, which in public libraries, because we don't have the school librarianship, so youth services in public libraries. And we're seeing public in general as our, our, our largest um, percentages of student interest and of those youth services and archival are the lead. That's interesting because we had done some interviewing recently and everybody on their resume said they were really interested in, in archival studies 
Can you explain why it's such a, a large focus now in, in library school? You know, that's a great question, and I think it's, it, it relates to, you know, the information environment out there and people, you know, the technology where you have all this repository of information that informs that, you know, just can't stay that way. They're going to be lost. And so that the need to digitize, the need to, to store it in such a way that it may be accessed, the related issues of metadata and how, how it can be modeled effectively and how those models can be posted or uh, implemented in some kind of a website in you know, such a way that it can be browsed or searched. People are just, you know, recognizing that, and even if their first first uh, interest may be in a public, they they want to know more about this archival, and some and some folks are doing the archival as the first. But I think it's it's partly driven by the whole, you know, kind of the the, the change or the evolution of the information environment and the need to be able to um, move information to digitize information. So, so it's safe. I mean, that's the issue, right? So you have multiple containers that contain this data. So some is an email, some is in, you know, we see it every day, right? Some people work out of Google Drive, other people work out of other online, you know, services like OneDrive, things like that. So archiving those multiple containers to one area is important for, for history's sake, right? And for Absolutely. documentation and things like that. So yep. I, could, I could see with all the digital containers we have now, right? That's a tremendous uh, field to get into. And you mentioned these different kinds of containers, and each one is a different kind of format. Right. And that's a tremendous problem. Yeah. You know, the idea of having ways to uh, somehow uh, map the information from one platform to another seamlessly, right. not manually, automatically. I mean, that is a real challenge. And you run into a spot where you have a timeline on these things. So if I had a zip disk, how would I open that now if I found it? You know, if I, yeah. if I had a CD, 10 years from now, if we find a CD full of information that hasn't been, you know, archived or documented somehow. Or a three and a half inch floppy. How are we going to open it? Exactly. Yeah. You know, or a three and a half inch floppy to us is, is old. But now think of the five and a quarter or five yeah. and a half that we mm -hmm. had, right? How would exactly. you open that if you found information that only existed on that larger floppy? Exactly. You know, you'd have to go to a museum and fire up the old Mac and see if you could, you know. Yeah, that exactly. There, you know, it's funny. There's a podcast called Preserve This Podcast. And they talk about... You know, people think, oh, well, it's a podcast. It's up there in the cloud, so it's going to be there forever. But in, in the reality of things, you know, there's a, an audio host that the podcaster subscribes to, and it goes up and it gets hosted on their servers. And if that podcasting service or that, that host goes out of business, guess what? The podcast is gone because that RSS feed is created by that service. And if that RSS feed goes away, guess what? It literally, like Marty McFly in the photo, right, it's gone. it yeah. disappears from Apple Podcasts. It doesn't even, it's not even a clickable link that doesn't work anymore. It just is gone. So in terms of archiving, you know, I talk about this all the time at work where, you know, I have all of our episodes on an external drive. I have it in Dropbox. And then we also have it up with our audio host in case something catastrophic happens. So in terms of archiving, it really does make sense to have, if that's not your main concentration in the, in the profession, you should have at least a background to understand the, the conceptualization of what happens digitally with all this information. And it's not about, I mean, as much as it's great to you know, scan old photos and, and preserve physical documents and digitizing them, keeping digital records digital and alive and out there is just as important as archiving the, the physical thing. Exactly. Yep. We give up way too much for trust and convenience, you know, so like you mentioned Dropbox and Google Drive and we're talking about OneDrive and these other services, right? But we don't know where they're going to be 10 years from now. 
Right. Or if they, or if there's a federal crime or investigation, all of a sudden, like everything gets halted. Sure. So we're saying, you know, this podcast is great, and we're going to upload it to this particular feed, and they're going to host it for us. Now, if they're caught in illegal activity or whatnot, and they get taken down, we don't have any say to where our data exists anymore. Right. So I always use the example yeah. with people with their digital photos. Yeah, it's on your phone. That's great. Until, what happens if right. you lose your phone? So I tell people then there's Google Photos that automatically backs it up. Right. But then I also explain to them if Google has a catastrophic failure, let's say there's a cyber attack and, and they get wiped out, um, what do you do then? So I always tell people it's, it's the rule of three. It lives on the device that created it. Then you upload it somewhere like a, a Shutterfly or Google Photos. But then the, the third thing is, is, some, is the part that people don't want to do because it's less convenient is to buy an external hard drive, plug it into whatever it is, even if it, you're downloading from, back from Google Photos, throw it on the hard drive. Because I use the example, if there's a house fire and the computer gets wiped out, your phone gets wiped out, and that external hard drive gets wiped out, it's still in the cloud. Yeah. If Shutterfly goes out of business and Google goes out of business, which not likely, but right. let's say there's some kind of catastrophe, um, you still have it backed up on an external hard drive. If your computer dies or your phone dies and it's right. not backed up to the cloud, yeah. you have a third place for it. So it's like this triangle of archivism where you can keep it in three different places in case there's a catastrophe. Now, if, <laughs> if Google has that, goes out of business, <laughs> you have a house fire and your phone falls in you the toilet, you're, yeah. you've got bigger problems. Yeah. Yeah. Lo yeah. Local retention is key. And you know, we're, I've been in IT for 22 years and that's the struggle, that's the part, Chris, you're right, that they struggle with. You know? So they think, well, it's on the phone, it's, it's on my iCloud account, and I get it on my iPad and I get it on my Mac and I'm kind of in that environment, that atmosphere, so I, I trust that Apple's gonna hold on to that. You don't have any sort of, you know, um, there's no way that you can guarantee that those things are gonna be there tomorrow morning. Right. Uh, so local retention is, is absolutely key, and, and really nobody's doing it because it hasn't happened to enough people where they lose right. all their photos that only existed on that device. So it's the equivalent to having your family photo album uh, under the coffee table, and you have a house fire. Now that's the only place you had those memories, and now they're gone. Yep. So exactly. if you have a digital house fire, you're in big trouble if you don't have you know, a safe with, with, a, with a, you know, and that's the case, right? Back up local. Um, retain it locally, put it in a safe, right? Get a safety deposit box, and once a year, you know, just download your stuff and, you know, put it in there. No, and, but nobody's doing that. And so. then and you got the challenge of, uh, you know, proprietary versus non-proprietary, where, so the no open source is out there, but it's not to the extent where it's kind of behind in a right. sense. Yeah. You know, you got the new invent, the new work is, is for the most part proprietary, and they're more focused on monetization and you know how their you know revenue streams etc and so they're not really too worried about you know if, if anything they want you to just use their technology right. they don't care about whether you can move off there yeah. whether you can take this and move it to a safer environment or move it in such a way that it could be you know you could leverage another platform right. and so in some sense that's where you well two things you could have an organization like the World Wide Web, Web Consortium has done a lot of work with the semantic web and, mm -hmm. and things like RDF and, and uh, the ontology work there. And, and again, all of that is non-proprietary types of, of research. It would help if, if maybe the government had some leadership there. I mean, the government played it in, in terms of whatever best practices or technologies, some kind of insurance that certain technologies will be around. Government took the lead way back in the 60s with, with programming languages. And in doing so, it really Standardized, helped. right, yeah. yeah. Yep. You had a language like COBOL, which right. actually was a government initiative. It's still around. Right, and it yeah. But on my 
not to jump on, go off on COBOL, but my point is some government leadership, I think, would also help in this regard yeah. as well. It probably runs most of our satellite hardware, COBOL, right? Probably, yeah. Day, yeah. It's still there. Yep, it is. And <laughs> it's part of the launch there. codes. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> but in the formats, you bring up, and so the formats are a big deal, too. You know, they'll, they'll support format conversion from, you know, two or three different. So if you have doc, and all of a sudden now you have docx, right, you can understand it, too. Right. But, right. but span that across 10 years, and can I open the old document from 10 years ago? And that's the issue when you get into archiving. So what are we archiving? How are we archiving it? Because will those be openable? Can you actually, you know, modify them or view them many, many years from now? So... By putting into one centralized uh, software, that goes away. You actually, you know, you can. So, um, right, it's important. Uh, yeah. So thanks for coming in and, and joining welcome. us today. Um, it was a pleasure speaking to you. And hopefully, yeah. we get to have you come on again. Sounds like fun. Thanks, man. That'd be great. Okay. Thanks for coming. Take in, care. Joe. Thanks. Bye bye. Okay, we're back at the Lilric Conference about li libraries in the future. Twenty eighth. 28th, yes. So we have a new guest. Uh, my name is Edward Tenner. I'm an independent writer affiliated with Rutgers University and the Smithsonian Institution. So tell us what brought you here today. I was invited to give a keynote, and it was a tremendous honor. So of course, I accepted. And I've been working on information issues for a long time. And it's a special privilege to be able to discuss them with librarians. So tell us about some of the works that you've, uh, you've written. Well, my most recent book is called The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do. And it's a critique of the search for a friction-free world. And it's an argument that a certain amount of friction is not only helpful, but friction is sometimes necessary for long-term efficiency. So paradoxically, and here's the paradox in the title, Paradoxically, the pursuit of short-term efficiency can reduce long-term efficiency. So tell us about, with regard to efficiency, how would that apply with libraries? There's a widespread belief that electronic data somehow are more efficient than print. And it's true that in a lot of ways it can be more economical to use electronic data, and I use it all the time. I read many, many, maybe most articles that I read electronically. However, there are lots of studies that show that for many purposes, print is actually more efficient. People retain different information when they read print. They have a better grasp of overarching ideas. They have a better sense of the whole. On the other hand, if you read the electronic version, you have a better eye for details, and certainly you can search the electronic version much more efficiently. So I use both. I love to be able, for example, to search within an article to, to see uh, what every time a, a term or a person is mentioned. And one of my points for librarians is that there's a lot of work to do in educating people to use digital materials. For example, in one study conducted, I think, by Google, 90% of the population did not know about Control-F for... <laughs> so, so librarians may assume that people know a lot more about using electronic resources than they do. On the other hand, people have shown, for example, students have shown that contrary to most predictions, they really prefer 
physical textbooks to electronic textbooks. And the reason is, again, that you learn differently. You, you have a kind of map of a page, and it is really helpful in getting the big picture. On the other hand, an electronic version can be useful for other things. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that, because I think in terms of, you know how they say if you're taking notes by typing, your retention rate is different than it would be as if you were, instead of you were handwriting them out. So I guess psychologically that's tantamount to living it with writing it versus ex watching it with typing yeah. it. Is that the same kind of theory? Yeah, I actually I deal with, with those studies in my book. And one of the most interesting things about that is that when people are taking notes by hand, because they can't capture them word for word unless they are members of that vanishing band of professional stenographers. Right. And you know, Charles Dickens got his start as a stenographer and he could take court records in real time. Very helpful for a writer. But uh, the present day uh, typist in class is trying to get as many words as possible. And the problem with that is that this fluency will get a perhaps a more accurate word-for-word -word description of what was in a lecture. However, what it lacks is the kind of processing that you have to do when you can't take things down word-for-word. -word. So you are assimilating the information in a different way when you're taking a note. You're, you're extracting the most important ideas. You're, you're making them your own, whereas in the other case, you're, you're just transcribing them. So that means that you really have to go back later to what you have transcribed and, and process it again, and maybe even take notes on what you've transcribed, which is why the longhand note taker has this hidden advantage. Also, the longhand note taker can make diagrams, can, uh, can check things in different ways. There, there is a lot more flexibility, actually, in the longhand record than there is in the computer record. In thinking, see, I came into librarianship in the late 90s. So when I was in library school, it was still reference books. It was still indexes. It was still all that stuff. And then when I was in my undergraduate work, I had to write a thesis. So I spent hours and hours and hours toiling through indexes, social science yeah. indexes, to try to find articles. And it's just citations, and you yeah. have to go and pull them. And yeah. then you know, I always joke, you're going to get hand cancer from all the copies you're making, <laughs> copying thousands and thousands of pages of, of journal articles. And there was no control F for that. Whenever I'm talking to people who are in library school now, where they're doing it online and it's all digital and, and there's almost no paper involved at all unless they're taking notes on the side. I wonder how their brain is processing it versus where I was, I'm gonna use the word toil, you know, because it's just more rustling of papers and, and moving, moving stuff around where I had to actually physically read yeah. each article and highlight each yeah. piece. Did I retain that information better because I went through that whole process versus reading a journal article and hitting control F? Now, that six months worth of research I could probably do in six weeks now, but would I have retained it and would my thesis have been as comprehensive? Would it have been compre as comprehensive if I did it completely digitally? I think the big advantage of the, um, the, the paper index is really not so much the work that you put into getting resources and, and maybe copying them and, and doing these other manual things, but it's really the serendipity. It's really seeing entries uh, before and after. And one of the themes of the efficiency paradox is the importance of serendipity. And that's also one of the great virtues of, of, of print, 
uh, versus electronic resources. So I have found very often, if I was looking up a word, for example, in the print edition of the OED, that I would see some other words around it or other senses of that word. And uh, of course, that could be distracting, and that, that, that's a potential problem. But that serendipity also can lead people to, uh, to discovery. And Robert Merton, the great sociologist, was inspired by a physical copy of the OED that he bought in a used bookstore when he was a graduate student in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And some of the themes that he found while browsing in it remained uh, his important life's work. So the great thing about those older volumes was paradoxically their distraction, that they didn't take you directly, uh, but you had to go through a lot of steps along the way. And along the way, at least if you think serendipitously, you can find other things that, that are sometimes even worthier of your attention. This is so fascinating to me. This is, I'm thinking in terms of even now let's say, because the databases really are, have taken over. Mm -hmm. How do we then psychologically retain now that we're kind of constrained to the digital versions versus being able to go into the stacks and mm -hmm. go through indexes mm -hmm. and do all that old school stuff. How are our brains going to adapt and still retain the information the same way? How do we reconcile that and fill that, that gap between? Well, one of the challenges for librarians now actually is to find ways to reintroduce serendipity mm -hmm. into digital resources. I'm not a librarian, I'm not a data scientist, so I can't say, I can't say how to do that. I have sometimes been able to do that for my own purposes. Uh, and I've also developed uh, techniques that I call cognitive bootstrapping that let me start a search in Google and then discover other terms that help me refine the search and, and find the highest, the highest quality items. And I have lectured on this in, in libraries uh, before. And it's one of those things I think that professional librarians could do much better than I could do. So one of my goals is to encourage librarians to pursue this and to uh, help people use electronic resources in, in a much more sophisticated way instead of trusting the so-called genius of the algorithm, which is often <laughs> very, very kludgy when you start to look under the hood. You're right. And, and as you're talking about the serendipity of, in the OED, I, I immediately think in terms of uh, you're reading a definition and it'll say, see also, mm -hmm. and that drags you to someplace else, which is then mm -hmm. drag it's, it's what I, it's almost like the YouTube effect, where you, you go in yeah. to watch an instructional video yeah. about how to change the headlight in your car, videos, yeah. and six clicks later, you're watching B-29s take off from Tinian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, um, I think that's, that's, a, you know, that, that's a great point, because the, the, um, the, this kind of distraction can be productive if you, if you learn to, to channel it in the right way, and that's, that's really what I've always done. And what turned out from, for me is that the web and, and hypertext turned out to be the way I was always thinking. So I was really tremendously excited by that. At the same time, I was really grateful that, like you, I had to learn to do things the hard way. In fact, when I was writing my dissertation in Europe, uh, the library where I was staying, the Heidelberg University Library, had catalog cards only from about 1955. And everything before that was on slips of paper 
uh, in in huge bound books that that smelled like old cigar boxes, <laughs> and the the slips of paper were held in by by elastic bands, and there were no subject headings. So. I had a kind of baptism of fire in German libraries and archives that has served me well for the rest of my life. If you can read 19th century German script, you can read anything. <laughs> and I learned, I learned how to read it. And even now when I meet other writers who have worked in those materials, it's, 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 like, it's like having been combat veterans together. I can only imagine what that's like. That's cool. So, you know, in my previous life, I uh, attended law school. Uh, I didn't make it through, so I'm not a lawyer. But one thing that I found interesting, looking backwards in the context of time, because when I first wanted to go into the, the library profession, I wanted to become a law librarian. The concept when I was in law school of doing the research, and the research is what really, as much as the law is interesting and intriguing to me to this day, it was the research, which is much most lawyers hate, the, the research is what drove me. And the whole legal process is paper back in... 1993, 1994, it's all paper. And then you hear the stories about law school and people cutting the pages out you know, to try to get ahead and all that, that, that nefarious stuff. Mm. But in terms of even shepherdizing, making sure stuff's good law, you had to go through pamphlet after pamphlet after pamphlet mm. because that was the most recent information. And then they, and we're talking in the days of a 386 computer with a 4800 baud modem that you had to dial in and if somebody called you on call waiting, it bounced you off. Oh, Lord. Yeah. The law schools would give us a free copy of the software for Lexis and Westlaw, which were the databases to do legal research online. So we, as law students, did it both ways. Now, I tended to stay towards the books because of the unreliability of the connection to those databases, which weren't necessarily the internet yet. But as I progressed in my career before I came to Labyrinthland, I worked in various paralegal situations and worked in New York state courts where it transitioned to then CD-ROMs and CD-ROM towers, and then it became the online subscription. And I found that although my preferred way of doing re that research was paper, it became easier to do some of those other rote tasks like shepherdizing, which is checking to see if something is good law. So instead of pulling the bound volume and then pulling the blue pamphlet, the red pamphlet, the yellow pamphlet, and then finally the, the slip to find out if anything happened recently, you could just click one button at the top of the screen and find out whether or not it was good law, or whether it's been overturned, or whether it's been, you know, there have been dissenting opinions, or whatever else. So for me, and I have a couple of friends that are in law school right now, and they look at me like I'm crazy. I liked that my one foot was in the paper and the other foot was in the digital, so I can understand both. And that transitions to, to regular library service now, where I can understand that somebody needs to pull a physical book as opposed to searching a database. And now the knee-jerk reaction is just, well, why don't you just check a database and see if there's an ebook or, or mm -hmm. find a way that something that's easy to search. Mm -hmm. But conceptually, I like that I had that education in the paper first because there's something to be said for that hard work in finding it and understanding the process that is now, instead of pulling each one of those things and flipping through and looking through it, it's a click. So instead mm -hmm. of it being a 15-minute process, it's a two-second click. Yeah, I, I, be I believe the same thing. I absolutely second what you've said. In fact, I've discovered a, another wrinkle in it, and that is that sometimes if I'm looking for a concept that doesn't have clear periodical references in JSTOR or another of the many databases that the Princeton Library has, 
I will go to Google book search. Yes. And I can often find uh, passages in books that have exactly what I'm looking for. And I can then go to those paper books because most of them are not available online. They're not, they're not e-books. So in that sense, Google really, although the Authors Guild to which I belong, uh, rightly objected that writers were, weren't getting paid for any of that digitization, uh, I have to say that on balance, it's really been great for writers, or at least for, for writers who, who need to use it. And also, it's a, it's a terrific way to verify information. If you have a quotation that seems a little dodgy, as I recently discovered, I, you can go to Google book search and see if anybody has said that before. For example, if any biographer, there was a quote from, uh, supposedly from Herman Melville's publisher about Moby Dick and does it have to be a whale? And uh, shouldn't it be another one of his South Sea tales of romance and so forth? And it seemed, it seemed really suspicious to me. So I was able online to search for this quote in a number of standard biographies of Melville. And because it wasn't there, I inferred that it hadn't taken place. And furthermore, I had in my personal library a book that I had bought about Melville's publisher. And the, the author of this supposed letter to Melville, a brother supposedly of the uh, the CEO of the publishing house did not appear in the index. So I was 100% sure that this was made up information. But it really was the Google book search that simplified uh, verifying this. And I, I discovered all this when I was preparing my, my latest uh, TED talk. And I had to check everything. Uh, so I am grateful for resources like Google book search. You know, and, and it also brings up, and Bob, you're probably familiar with this too, the, the concept of searching Google and limiting to, like, going to scholar.google.com. Yeah, I, I use, that's one of the, the techniques that I recommend to people. I, I tend not to, to go to Google Scholar because I feel it might be a little too restrictive, but I will often start with .edu and .org, maybe .gov, even .mil, and only then go on to the .coms. Right, so what I usually tell people is if they're doing some type of research for a research paper or something like that, it's a secondary source, not a primary source. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't start with Google Scholar, yeah. but if, let's say you're searching and your school doesn't have a, a subscription to Jester and you see that it's only available there, maybe you would get lucky as a secondary um, source or resource to try Google Scholar, because sometimes yeah. it's there. Yeah. And now you don't have to pay for it. You don't have to deal with interlibrary loaning it and getting it faxed and getting a terrible copy of the yeah, fax right. and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah, all that, right. that stuff yeah. that's subscription based. Yeah, a lot of stuff really, a lot of stuff really turns out to be there. Sometimes it's been digitized for a course and it happens to have been left up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is all very fascinating. And you talk again back to that idea of serendipity. Sometimes we talk about, and I don't know if you've thought about this, written about this, the idea of when you're in front of a screen, you get that, that certain amnesia. But when your brain, it's that active thinking versus the passive thinking, where you take your break at work or whatever, and you go for a walk. And then somehow, magically, all these ideas come back into your head. Yes, walking, walking and taking breaks is a very powerful thing. I've used it a lot. In fact, when I was 
in Heidelberg, there is a, uh, there's a path on the other side of the Neckar River uh, along the, the hills where their wine is grown. It was called the, the Philosopher's Way because it was a favorite of uh, faculty members and students who would stroll there and, and, and uh, discuss these, uh, these weighty questions because there is something about, I once read there, there is a, walking is a kind of optimal way to stimulate the brain. Much better than sitting still, but also it's better than running. It's just the right amount of additional circulation. The thing that I find fascinating is that people get screen amnesia. It's almost as though a certain part of the brain just stops, either stops functioning or yeah. doesn't work properly because yeah. you're yeah. so driven visually yeah. to what's in front of you. I think it's, I think it's really because the screen, the screen is a kind of, of mirage, as the very name screen suggests. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is something about the physicality of the book and the way that words are mapped on a page and even the fact that you have to turn a page. Uh, the people who have photographic memories very often are able to remember the, the whole appearance of the page, and that's what right. lets them remember the content. And I'm not sure if the same people had scrolled through the book on the screen that they would be able to remember the content of the book in the same way. I haven't seen that experiment performed, but I'll bet that, that they can do much better because of the, of the format of the paper, also because the paper has all kinds of interesting characteristics. It, it depends on the light around you. It depends on the, the type of paper. There is the physical aspect of turning the page. You can flip back and forth in a certain way. So in, in book history, and I've, I've taught a course in the history of information at Princeton. In book history, um, one of the things that they say is that, that every single copy of a book, at least you know, before 1800, but to some extent even now, every copy is different. And it's that, that personality of the book that's the result of the decision of, of publishers, and I, worked in publishing for over 15 years. It's, it's, it's partly a result of the decision of publishers, what format to use, what uh, typeface, the, the letting between the, uh, the, the lines, the margins. All of these things don't just come out of the blue. They're the result of the discussion between uh, the editor, uh, the, um, the, the designer, marketing, uh, some, well, the author has to sign off on it. And uh, out of all that, though, comes a, a kind of gestalt of the book that's part of the personality of the book. You know, I, I always wondered if there was a certain science or psychology behind the typesetting, the spacing, the, even the, the graphics that separate chapters mm -hmm. maybe in a fiction book. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there, uh, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's a science yeah. behind it. That's been studied a lot. In fact, in, um, in The Efficiency Paradox, I talk about something called uh, desirable difficulty, that people actually remember uh, ideas better if the type is a, is a little hard to read. Mm -hmm. And I don't recommend that. I mean, it's one of those, please don't do this at home. You know, I, I don't recommend that to publishers, and I'm not going I'm, I'm to write, and I'm not going to read a book that is, is going to be typeset that way. But there's something in that, that there is a, that, that, that kind of obstacle, little obstacles that you have when using print uh, contribute to your, Focus your learning. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, one, of the, one of the fascinating things I found was that there, there have been typefaces that have been designed especially for school children to help them 
learn better, but those don't seem to be any better than, than <laughs> other typefaces in, in actual performance. It really is interesting when you think about the science behind publishing. Well, there's, a, there's an enormous literature in typography and design and readability. I know someone who has a patent for a system of typesetting that supposedly improves the reading speed and comprehension of marginal readers. It doesn't do anything for profici proficient readers, but it's a way of spacing between words that helps people to read. Now, I, I, I'm not sure how, how widely this has been licensed, but I've, I've exchanged email with a very distinguished psychologist over the years. So people, there are, there are many people, when you think of all the schools of education, and there are, there are reading specialists in every one of those schools. There are lots of people who have worked on this and, and a huge body of literature on which I've drawn a very small part in the book. What do you read when you're not doing the research? Far too little, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm sure. I, mean, I, I, have, I am in a, uh, I have chosen a uh, lifestyle that is virtually 24-7 uh, of, of an independent uh, writer. So it's, it's very hard for me to take a break because there's always some new deadline. And if there isn't a new deadline, there is an internal pressure for me to come up with my next book idea, which I'm in the process of doing now. And that is, people, people often ask my advice in finding a publisher. And what I tell them is the, the difficult thing isn't finding a publisher. Because I have a publisher. I have a great publisher. I have a great agent. They like my work. But the difficult thing is, is coming up with something that's going to be viable both intellectually and commercially. And, and that is really a full-time job. Uh, I would say so, yeah, sure. So, so tell us about your most recent book. Well, this was published in 2018. It was uh, nominated, uh, it actually was a Bloomberg 2018, one of the best books of the year, uh, nominated by the chairman of the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank. And um, it had a star, uh, starred review in Publishers Weekly and nice reviews in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. So I've been very happy with the uh, with the reception of it, and it's also one that quite a few people in Silicon Valley have expressed interest in. It's different from most books critical of Silicon Valley because they are talking about the danger to our political system, to the human soul, to all of the things that Silicon Valley doesn't really care about. And my idea in the book is that the pursuit of efficiency can actually be harmful to efficiency. So that really gets to the heart of Silicon Valley yeah, yeah. values. So I consider it the most radical attack on Silicon Valley to date. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, it's certainly been interesting having you on the podcast. I really appreciate you coming in and taking time. Before. You're, you're about to go out there soon, right? Well, I'm, I'm on later this afternoon, but I'm... Um, I'm hoping to get you know lunch and yes, <laughs> we all are. Yeah, we're looking forward to so lunch. So I, I really I'm delighted to have this chance, and uh, you have wonderful questions from your experience. I have to I have to learn more about shepherdizing. I, I, <laughs> I have this I have this view of the of a of a kind of uh, this this you know figure in a in a mantle with a with a crook who is kind of leading the leading the law school <laughs> law students <laughs> on the right path and they follow like a like a flock i i've got i've got to learn more about shepherdizing yeah maybe, it's, it's maybe. not as it's not as exciting as all that we have to take a break but i really appreciate you coming in and uh we can't wait for your keynote thanks very much thank you 
Again, thank you to Jim Vorbach from St. John's University and Edward Tenner from Rutgers University and the Smithsonian for joining us at the Long Island Library Resources Council Conference on Libraries in the Future. We really appreciate them coming on the podcast. And if you have not yet listened, we have two other installments of this episode from the Lilrick Conference. One segment is with Lee Rainey from Pew Research, and the other is a great conversation with Christopher Jelly, the head of technology at the North Merrick Public Library here on Long Island.